and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we are going to be talking about the British general election. Theresa May has shot the starting gun of the election and announced that a vote will take place on the 8th of June. We have seen that the opinion polls are predicting a huge Conservative majority. Today, there was a poll by YouGov, which had the Conservatives on 48%, Labour Party on 24%, and the Liberal Democrats on 12%. That would give the Conservatives a majority of over 240 parliamentary seats. Unfortunately, we don't know after the last election and the referendum last year whether the opinion polls are right. So there'll be a big debate about whether we can trust those polls. But there are two other big questions which are on people's minds, which we'll look at in this podcast. Firstly, is the election likely to produce a harder or a softer Brexit? And secondly, will we have a more inward or outward looking Britain after this election? And what will it mean for European foreign policy? To help us make sense of these questions, we have two excellent guests. First up is Tom Nuttall, the Brussels Bureau Chief and Charlemagne columnist of The Economist, who is also an ECFR alumni. In the dim and distant distant past, he was an editor at ECFR. And second up, we have Susie Dennison, who is the director of ECFR's European Power Programme, who's joining us by Skype from France. So why don't we start with you, Tom? Um, what do you think we have heard so far in the first few days of election fever about what the different parties are going to do on on the Brexit? Um, so this is a this is a peculiar election for for many reasons, not least because the Prime Minister repeatedly assured us um, from pretty much the moment that she took office that she wasn't going to hold one, um, even though the, the political logic behind holding one seemed impeccable. Now she is going to do one. It's, it, it's a sort of a screeching U-turn. And the fact that she's able to get away with it and also able to get away with what, in my opinion, are... Um, extremely flimsy arguments for doing so. This notion that she, um, uh, that the country is coming behind her, but Parliament isn't, and therefore she needs to get a, um, a stronger, uh, a stronger majority in Westminster to strengthen her hand. Um, I think this is all patent nonsense. Um, and if we're looking for reasons to understand why she's um, called this election, um, we need to look elsewhere. And maybe we can get into that in a little bit. Um, but either way, it clearly is. It is a Brexit election. It's not a normal election. And one of the oddities, um, uh, I mean, watching this admittedly from, um, from afar, um, is that while the Conservative Party will be uh, probably talking about very little other than uh, the negotiations that are about to start, that will start soon after the election, the opposition Labour Party, um, at least to judge by what we've heard from its leader, Jeremy Corbyn, so far, doesn't seem particularly interested in talking about Brexit. Its message on Brexit is extremely unclear. Um, it took them a while even to rule out that they were calling for um, a second uh, Brexit referendum, as the Liberal Democrats are, are doing. Um, they don't seem to have a message. They have a, they have a big political problem in that their voters are very divided on Brexit. But I think the biggest issue is that Jeremy Corbyn himself has never evinced much interest in this issue at all and continues not to do so. So we're going to have a slightly odd election, which has been called uh, more or less on the exclusive grounds of Brexit, in which one of the two main parties 
competing for the vote is not interested in talking about Brexit. So it might make for a slightly peculiar sort of disjointed campaign. And what, what, so what do you expect, Susie? Well, I think that when um, when Theresa May says that the country's come behind her, but Parliament hasn't, I think what is fairly uh, true is that um, the country um, now is perhaps less divided on whether to Brexit or not than it was a year ago. Um, polls now indicate that um, more like 69% are in favour of, of us continuing on the path towards Brexit, um, as opposed to, to doing a U-turn on that. Um, but where division is still huge is, is, is on what type of Brexit. And I think that um, the challenge will continue to be in this election campaign, as it has been in political debates um, over the last year um, is is the kind of the lack of clarity over um, what kind of Brexit we're heading for. What what, what is clear from Theresa May um, is that she wants um, to to go for um, the the relatively hard Brexit option, and and I think in some ways um, this election. Uh, makes that more certain um, to be the case, not only because um, that's what she herself is going to be negotiating for, um, but the firmer her position in the European part, in sorry, the, the firmer her position in the UK Parliament, um, the less she's going to be able to hide behind the need to convince Parliament at home when she's negotiating with her European colleagues. So in that sense, I think um, it, it's going to make the negotiations even tougher uh, because uh, because because the, the the sort of the cliff edge option where where we don't end up with an agreement at all um, potentially becomes more likely um, if she goes in hard. Um, on what uh, um, other European leaders are calling the early issues around um, payments into the EU budget and so on, um, then um, and does, it refuses to do um, to compromise there, and then the talks sort of fall apart. Um, so, so yeah, I think in in some ways, um, what the it's, it's very hard to see how we'll go anywhere other than hard Brexit at this stage. So, should we maybe try and delve a bit deeper onto that? What are the reasons why the markets are assuming this is going to lead to a softer Brexit, Tom? Because we saw the the markets rallying after yeah. she she called the election. I mean, I I think the the assumption uh, there is probably um, it's, it's as um, a, a European official put it to me yesterday. Um, in his interpretation of um, why she decided to hold an election, it is to, stre- to, to strengthen her hand so that she can be weaker in the negotiations to come um, with the EU because she knows that she's going to have to make compromises. Now, whether or not you agree with that assessment, I think that's probably the best way of interpreting um, what we saw on the currency markets yesterday. Um, so now I, I, I just want to sort of um, just a sort of a, uh, some mental thought clearing um, that the, the term hard Brexit, um, it's sort of amazing how it's, it's shifted its meaning as the months have gone by. Um, it used to mean leaving the single market and leaving the customs union. And if one thing is clear from the Article 50 letter from the Lancaster House speech from the White Paper, and that, that, is, that is what Britain is going to be doing. It will be leaving the single market. It will be leaving the customs union. In other words, there is no question about whether or not we're going for a hard Brexit. We are. That's what we're going to do. But there are questions over exactly what sort of negotiating start she's going to take. And some people here would say it's not really so much about whether she's going for a hard Brexit or a soft Brexit. It's whether she's going for a realistic Brexit 
it or not, and whether they're going to start to accept that, for example, there's a need for to maintain the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice, particularly in a transitional deal. Um, what sort of approach there will be to what I think is going to be a fairly difficult discussion over the so-called Brexit bill, the financial settlement linked to um, linked to departure. So a lot of that stuff is up for grabs. Um, I think it's not at all clear from the decision to hold an election exactly what that implies for um, the stance that she will take when the negotiations finally begin, partly because they will have their own logic. It won't only be a British domestic logic, something that's often forgotten about in Britain. Um, but the one thing I might, for what it's worth, my interpretation is that this is partly um, about... Uh, not what happens now, not what happens in the negotiations over the next couple of years, but actually what happens in five years' time. So under the previous electoral timetable, um, Britain would have held a general election in 2020, um, and this would be about a year after Britain would have left the European Union. Now, on the assumption that there's going to be some sort of transitional deal that involves um, conditions fairly close to Britain's current membership, in other words, freedom of movement, contributions to the EU budget, ECJ jurisdiction, all of this stuff that Britain is supposedly voted to leave, it would have been rather difficult to go into an election um, with all of these things still around. It wouldn't, we would have left, but it wouldn't really have felt much like leaving. Now that she's changed the timetable, the next election will be in 2022. In other words, three years after we leave. Now, at that point, either that transitional period will be over or it will be about to finish. And that's a much better proposition for Theresa May to take to the country um, than it would have been if we still had ongoing freedom of movement, ongoing payments to the EU budget and so on. So I think that's one quite plausible interpretation of the decision to, to call this election. So on the other side, though, what do you think are the, the areas where she's going to end up being constrained by the election? Are there areas where you think that she might um, have to make pledges in order to face down a UKIP threat or her backbenchers to, uh, during the campaign, which then make it more difficult to, to, to do a deal afterwards. Susie, do you want to do your, your list and then we can hear Tom's list afterwards? I, I don't see um, the, the sort of the, the UKIP um, threat as... Um, as, as going as being a sort of a big issue for her for her to deal with um, in this election, I think what is going to be sort of a more of a challenge for her is um, uh, in, 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 in certainly in terms of foreign policy is defining um, a bit more what this globalist Britain, um, uh, this this um, outward facing Britain that sort of goes beyond Europe and um, and exploits the next networks outside Europe, as well as keeping good relations with it, with um, its former EU partners, um, is actually going to mean. And the sort of the attempts that um, have been made so far um, uh, since um, since the Brexit, Brexit vote to sort of to put bone, bones on that have, um, have, have not really worked out, you know, the sort of the um, uh, Commonwealth 2.0 and, um, and and so on. So I think that um, there will be a need for her um, at home to not only um, to justify um, Brexit um, in, in 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 her rhetoric around Europe, but also um, to uh, to assuage the fears of those who perhaps voted Leave, um, perhaps didn't, but are concerned now about where Britain is left. Um, in terms of that, in terms of that international attitude, so I think um, this is going to be um, one of the. So, sorry. 
Yeah, no, I, I don't understand where you think this pressure is going to come from to assuage that because, I mean, I, ha- I don't see very much of those sorts of pressures in the, in the, in the media. I don't feel that um, that's going to be the big uh, thing which people are calling for. I think, do you not think it's more likely that they'll be asking her to, to be very specific on how much uh, migration she's going to let in, into the country? There's been a debate about taking students out of that list, so slightly liberalising things, but that's going to be one of the kind of questions. Does she commit to, to getting migration numbers down under 100,000? What does she say about payments to Brussels? Um, what does she say about the whole question of the European Court of Justice? I mean, those are things which could have quite a big impact on the... I, I suspect there'll be more pressure on her on those sorts of things than from um, Remainers or, or liberal Brexiteers who have been pretty absent outside of seats, which, uh, you know, like Richmond... Well, I think I think definitely there will be um, there will be a need for her to um, to set out her stand um, in terms of how she's going to go about negotiating Brexit. But I think that that um, that vision um, of 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 where uh, of where Britain stands in um, an increasingly scary world uh, is 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 one that that does concern voters, and um, I think that the the election uh, coming now is is you know I, I I think that that's where the sort of um, the, the the intelligent debate about um, uh, uh, about Britain's global role um, is, is going to take place I mean I think that um, that certainly um, in terms of uh, how brexit is going to to play out she is going to be under a, a lot of pressure there um, that she uh, to be you know up until now we haven't had um, uh, very much clarity at all um, about uh, about any of these things that that, that you mentioned in terms of um, exactly um, uh, what what Britain's position is going to be other than uh, um, other than no to um, uh, continuing budgetary contributions um, and um, making clear that um, uh, the that, that on the on the three pillars um, that that Britain uh, wants has voted to to take itself out, but um, you, you know that how you get from that position to one in which you've got to deal with other European partners, um, I think there's. You know, potentially still all to play for, um, and, and and again, I would come back to this sort of question of um, Britain's wider role in the world. That that part of getting um, a deal on those other issues is about selling um, Britain's assets uh, in a security sense, um, in a diplomatic sense, and so on, in European back to European partners, um, and and working out ways that um, uh, that you can continue to work on uh, work with um, with other. EU countries on on these fronts. So, um, so yeah, I, I mean, I think um, that she that that the, 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 these issues um, do need uh, more uh, more on them than, than we've had so far. Okay. Well, I want to come to the the wider European uh, sorry the wider British foreign policy things um, uh, in the last bit of the podcast, and we we have seen the Prime Minister commit to. Um, maintaining development spending at 0.7%, which is an interesting um, uh, development against the advice of the the Daily Mail and other tabloid newspapers. But before we do that, Tom, do you agree with what 
Susie was saying, or do you think there are kind of uh, pitfalls potentially in the election campaign in terms of the the Brexit negotiations? I'm I'm, I'm not really sure that there are because um, for two reasons. Um, One of them is that, uh, I mean, whatever else she is, Theresa May is certainly a very canny politician. Um, She's going to think very hard before making any sort of rash pledge um, that might um, bind her hands in the negotiations to come. Um, and the only re- the only way in which she would be forced into doing something like that would be if there were some source of external pressure that were impossible to resist. Um, and if you sort of survey the landscape, it's hard to see where that pressure would come from. It's not going to come from the opposition. The Labour Party is extremely weak. As, as we were saying before, it doesn't really have any sort of coherent line on Brexit at all. Um, yes, the, 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 the Lib Dems may prove... Um, resurgent in a handful of um of, uh, of marginal seats particularly in the southwest um but i don't think that that's going to amount to a, a serious sort of source of, of of pressure on may in the course of the campaign um and inside her own party and amongst the uh, the, the more sort of hardline extreme elements of the media um uh, she's done a fairly good job in the sort of phony war that we've had since the referendum um, of convincing them that she is on their side and that she's going to deliver a Brexit that they're happy with. Now, that may not last forever, particularly when the inevitable compromises have to come during the course of the negotiations, whether it's on money or anything else. But for now, I think that they are um, broadly on side, and she's not going to feel in the course of a six-week campaign um, under a huge amount of pressure to say, you know, whatever it is, I'm not going to pay a penny for the relocation of EU agencies, or um, the Brexit bill will be no larger than 20 million euros. And she, there's no reason for her to make pledges like that, um, and there's going to be no irresistible source of pressure to do so. So I would be surprised. You can also say, um, if you're after detail, well, you've got some. You've got what I gave in the Article 50 letter and the various speeches and papers that were issued before that. Now, some people might say, well, that leaves all sorts of unanswered questions and they'd be right. But politically, I see no reason for her to feel that she needs to give any more detail on the negotiating stance that she's going to take before the election. And so I don't expect her to do so. Okay, so on to this question of what a British foreign policy for a May government might look like once May is untethered and has a mandate of her own rather than the borrowed mandate from David Cameron and George Osborne's manifesto in the last election. Um, Susie, you kept on coming back to that topic in the early uh, questions. As I said, we've heard now from uh, Theresa May that she's going to maintain the 0.7% spending on aid, which is a, a kind of signal that Brexit will not be a move towards total disengagement from the rest of the world but what other kind of signals do you think we can take from from what's happened so far and how do you think the election might change them i think that um the 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 likelihood is that it will be um it will be framed around um the the sort of the the big concepts that were set out actually in the article 50 letter as well as well um of um, uh, a globally trading Britain, um, uh, one with a major focus on security, um, and, uh, and 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 I think that um, 
probably those kind of two pillars um, are, uh, are going to um, define um, that that sort of bigger vision um, that we might see from uh, from a future May May government. I think um, that. Uh, that clearly the uh the she's going to try um and make sure that the the transatlantic relationship as um as unpredictable as that might be at the moment um uh is uh is made as strong as possible and we've seen um efforts in recent weeks um uh to to work with uh the U- the US um uh, on 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 various issues from uh, from from Syria and so on, and I think that um, uh, you know that that will that will sort of continue um, to be a feature. Um, and um, but at the same time, I would anticipate um, the the sort of the security element, at least of that um, uh, of, of that offer, um, having quite a major European. Uh, component and um, uh, and 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 sort of uh, trying to um, ensure uh, that uh, the, the the partnerships which have been developed in the context um, not only of NATO but in um, smaller e- cooperations within the EU are taken forward. Um, and so um, I think that um, yeah, th- th- those are, those are the areas that I would imagine that they would want to um, to, to move. Um, British foreign policy forward post post Brexit. What do you think, Tom? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I agree with that. Um, the, the Brexit process itself is going to impose some constraints. Um, trade is is the most obvious one. Um, I mean, much as Britain might like to, or, the, or this government anyway, might like to um, begin its um, buccaneering, uh, uh, globetrotting with Captain Leon Fox um, striding all over the world, striking wonderful deals. Um, but, uh, legally, as we know, that can't happen until Britain has left. Um, but perhaps more importantly, I think it's going to be difficult for, for Britain to do anything meaningful at all until, at the very least, the parameters of the subsequent uh, trade deal with the European Union become clear. Um, why would any large partner want to strike a, a deal with Britain when, um, when it doesn't know what its relationship with Europe is going to be like? So that's going to be a big break on that, um, the, the the development point is interesting because um, it is. I mean, I think I agree with the assessment. It's um, one of Theresa May's way of making Brexit seem palatable is to suggest that um, it creates all sorts of opportunities for something called global Britain. And one way, particularly if you're not able to move on trade, one way to demonstrate that that's anything more than a slogan. Um, is to maintain this very strong commitment to development spending. Um, I, I was looking at a, um, a DFID strategy paper um, for my sins recently, um, and it's interesting to see that Brexit, the word Brexit is peppered all over the place. Um, it's a bit of a stretch in some places, actually. This probably got something to do with the fact that the, the Secretary of State, Priti Patel, who is a hardline Brexiteer, um, but still you can see this very... Uh, um, uh, this very sort of self-conscious attempt to link um, this policy for which Britain is very well known, one of the few OECD countries to meet that 0.7% target, um, to this new foreign policy 
priority, global Britain. Um, and maybe we'll start to see that pop up in other places as well. So as Susie was saying, security is the obvious one. Um, so, uh, I mean, Britain's commitment to NATO was hardly in doubt in the first place, but um, I think you can expect that uh, to be renewed. Um, Britain has troops stationed in, in the Baltic states as part of this more recent deployment. Um, perhaps we'll see more of that sort of thing. And perhaps, and this is going to be the really interesting thing, um, we'll see a commitment to try and create um, formal mechanisms for cooperation with the European Union, um, particularly on um, on security missions, of which there are a handful around the world in which Britain is generally quite an active member. Um, maybe some of them could even be headquartered in Britain. Um, and maybe these, these mechanisms for cooperation, for collaboration that um, Britain might hope to, uh, to set up they, they're not going to be, I don't think the EU will, will allow them to be used as sort of bargaining chips in, in the negotiation. I don't think they're going, they don't like this idea of a sort of a security surplus that can be traded against concessions elsewhere. But um, a good offer on that could certainly help create an atmosphere of goodwill, which would be conducive to um, to the broader negotiations on um, on the trade settlement to come. So I think that's, that it's very difficult to see how that's going to play out. Um, there's all sorts of technical difficulties that would be involved. Um, but it would be one way for Britain to demonstrate both that um, global Britain means something beyond a slogan and to show that it means what it says when it wants a strong, outward-looking, successful EU on its doorstep. What better way to show that you mean that than by actually participating in it in a way that shouldn't generate too much controversy at home? You two are very sunny about the, about this whole process. <laughs> I have to say that um, from my limited observations, I, I fear that what's happening to British foreign policy is is obviously not that Britain is going to disappear or still have a large economy or still be on the UN Security Council. But whereas when Britain was in the European Union, it was part of a bigger project of changing the way that the world was run and part of something bigger than itself. Now, all of that power and those resources are going to be deployed less uh, in terms of changing the structure of, of the world because Britain can't do that on its own and more about trying to get concessions for Britain in different parts of the world to sign trade deals with different countries to extract advantage from a system that is under enormous pressure anyway with Donald Trump and uh, his kind of challenge to the global liberal order. And in that sense, global Britain um, it means a lot of things, but it's much more about Britain than it is about the the globe. I think I think that's true um, that that global Britain is is definitely about Britain. Um, but that I think I think also um, ultimately Britain's interests um, leave aside trade, but for, from a security perspective, Britain's interests do align um, reasonably closely with that of. Um, other European partners. And so um, I think uh, that's why I think that there is scope um, for this, this, this kind of message of, uh, of, of cooperation on that front um, to continue to work for both sides. And as a result, for Britain to be part of the role which Europe will continue to play in shaping um, that, that global order. Uh, you know, certainly from um, a less privileged seat and certainly um uh, not at the center of it um but i i think that's how i imagine it will work out although that is obviously not how theresa may um, and her future government will want to portray it 
Well, these are very big questions. I think there'll be no shortage of time to, to come back and see uh, both whether our instincts are right about what global Britain means, but also how this election and its result shapes what Britain stands for at home and uh, within the European Union and on the global stage. But we have one thing left to do in this podcast, which is to talk about our bookshelves. Um, Tom, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? So I had two things. Um, the first is it's, it's a book that I actually reviewed for The Economist uh, last week. Um, it's called Refuge. Um, it's by Alexander Betts and Paul Collier, uh, respectively an expert on, on refugees and a development economist at Oxford University. Um, and this is basically their attempt to reimagine um, the architecture of, of global refugee management from the ground up. Um, it's a quite an ambitious book, as that suggests. Um, the, 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 probably the big idea of the book is that um, what we need to do is rather than uh, uh, essentially seeing refugees as victims um, and operating through this sort of refugee camp paradigm, um, which the UNHCR has long pushed, um, refugees need to be given economic opportunities, um, and in particular work, and that ideally needs to happen in the first countries of refuge. So in the case of Syrians, we're talking about Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, rather than in Europe. And um, the, the authors have some very rude words for Angela Merkel. In fact, I think they're a little bit unfair on her um, in the book. Um, but it's, uh, it's a very ambitious attempt to rethink uh, an area that's often sort of hidebound by um, path dependency and very old-fashioned forms of thinking. So in that respect, it's a breath of fresh air. Um, the, the other book I've been reading is um, a very long novel by an American author called Hanya Yanagihara. It's called A Little Life. Um, I think it was shortlisted for the Booker Prize last year. It's about um, four friends growing up in New York, one of them in particular who's undergone a very difficult childhood and how that colours his experiences and the experience of the people that are close to him. Um, and it's absolutely magnificent. I can't recommend it highly enough very traumatic very dark in places um but it's one of the best novels i've read in years wonderful what about you susie so um in keeping with my trying to keep a positive outlook on things um ahead of the um uh, french first round of elections this weekend i'm reading the um chapters um in emmanuel macron's revolution on maîtriser notre destin and um refonder l'europe um uh, to sort of try and get try and get a sense of um, uh, of where he's where he's thinking in terms of uh, where Europe goes next um, after the French elections. And in keeping with my less uh, sunny outlook, right? <laughs> I like to recommend one book, which is really amazing book um, called Democracy for Realists by a couple of American political scientists, Christopher. Um, I don't know how he pronounced it. H and Achen and Larry M. Bartels. Um, so the, the subtitle of this is Why Elections Do Not Produce Responsive Government. And um, it's a really very, very thought-provoking piece of work which takes uh, issue with the two fundamental ways that people think about democracy and what it produces and argues that instead of seeing democracy as something which really creates popular control or gives you um, accountability for what elites are doing, we need to think of it more as something which is about uh, about groups, social identities and, and, and political psychology, and that people basically 
don't vote based on a rational uh, sense of, of what their interests are, but instead they think about what their identity is and, and they see uh, identity politics as a proxy for those different programs. Benny, it's a very, very thought-provoking book. Second thing which I uh, recommend strongly is, uh, unfortunately it's behind a paywall, but there's an article in today's Times, the Times of the 21st of April, um, by Michael Gove, which is which says, now we'll find out what Mayism stands for. And it's a very short, but I think uh, interesting sketch of what Theresa May uh, looks like as as a political thinker. And he argues that she's going to be uh, a sort of post-liberal prime minister, neither the cold economic liberal of one caricature nor the hand-wringing Hampstead liberal of another, neither Hayek nor Rawls, but instead a, a communitarian, uh, more like uh, Blue Labour or Alistair McIntyre. And he, he talks about how her kind of philosophy is is one which is about rooting politics in, in specific communities um, for people who aren't living uh, from one Twitter storm to the next, who don't have the reserves of capital or connections to be able to chase every new opportunity that globalization might provide. So it's a thoughtful piece, which I think explains the rather peculiar mix of policies which uh, may evolve into Mayism after the next election. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do tell your friends about it. The best way to do that is to give us a review or a ranking on iTunes, uh, but you can also tweet about it. You can write about it on your Facebook page or on ours. And if you have any suggestions of how we can make this podcast even better or for topics or people to appear on it, please do write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. We will put links up to all the publications that we mentioned on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Tom Nuttall, Susie Dennison and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrike Franke and our editor is Pauline Goemin. Goodbye.